took a week off last week to, to see our, our new deacon ordained and uh, deacons commissioned. And um, we are thankful uh, for that and for that opportunity that we had last week to do that and to celebrate the Lord's table, the Lord's supper together. But we're jumping back in to this series in which we're looking at these stories that we would think of them as Sunday school stories or vacation Bible school stories. You know, those stories that, that, we, that we know well because we heard them over and over and over again, primarily when we were kids, or, or maybe if we've taught Sunday school or taught vacation Bible school, you've been involved in teaching them. And so sometimes we run into these things, right, when we think we know a story really well that we, we, we don't pay attention to it, and we just sort of gloss over it, right? And uh, so what I wanted to do is, in this series is, is to sort of stop and take a look at these stories that we, that we think we know and reconnect them with ourselves, ourselves reconnect them, look at them again for the first time, but also see and really examine how they fit into this broader story of Scripture and how they fit into the broader story of God at work and, and, and how for these stories, particularly these Old Testament stories that we're looking at, how they're, they're gospel stories Stories about Jesus and about Jesus' gospel work centuries before Jesus comes to live among us. And so that's where we are this morning. We are going to be looking at a story that probably many of us know. In fact, some of us have probably actually seen this story more than once on television. I, I threatened Trish that this week that I was going to come in dressed as Charlton Heston this morning. It's the story of the crossing of the Red Sea, part of the story of the Exodus, of God's salvation of his people from the land of Egypt. So we're going to be in Exodus chapter 14, and we're going to start with verse 10. And we're going to read through the end of the chapter. Now, this is a very long passage. And so what I'm going to ask is if you are willing and able for you to stand with me as we read Scripture together, but I understand that some of us may not feel up to it. Some of us may not be able to stand the whole time, and so if you need to sit or not stand, I understand, because this is a long reading. But we'll, if you are willing and able, will you stand with me as we read God's Word together? As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians coming after them, The Israelites were terrified and cried out to the Lord for help. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Who who knew the Israelites were snarky teenagers? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Isn't this what we told you in Egypt? Leave us alone so that we may serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. Stand firm and see the Lord's salvation that he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians, see you, for the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you must be quiet. The Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to break camp. As for you, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it so the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. As for me, I'm going to harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh, all his army, and his chariots and horsemen. 
The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I receive glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was in front of, going in front of the Israelite forces, moved and went behind them. The pillar of cloud moved from in front of them and stood behind them. It came between the Egyptian and the Israelite forces. There was a cloud and darkness that lit up the night, and neither group came near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back with a powerful east wind all that night and turned the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with waters like a wall on them to their right and to their left. The Egyptians set out in pursuit, all of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen, and went into the sea after them. During the morning watch, the Lord looked down on the Egyptian forces from the pillar of fire and cloud and threw the Egyptian forces into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve and made them drive with difficulty. Let's get away from Israel, the Egyptians said, because the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may come back on the Egyptians, on their chariots and horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea And at daybreak, the sea returned to its normal depth. While the Egyptians were trying to escape from it, the Lord threw them into the sea. The water came back, covered the chariots and horsemen, plus the entire army of Pharaoh that had gone after them into the sea. Not even one of them survived. But the Israelites had walked through the sea on dry ground, with waters like a wall to them on their right and on their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the power of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and believed in him and in his servant, Moses. This is the word of God. Read it, believe it, and live it. Let's pray. Dear God, my prayer for us this morning is as we open your word, as we study it, we turn to it, that you would not only show us your truth, God, but that you would that you would save us. That you would save us from from the the forces of sin and death and slavery that are pursuing us. That you would move between us and them to create a barrier, that you would remove the obstacles in our way that we may walk by faith on the dry land that you provide. And so God I pray that as we open your word as we study it the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. Maybe seated. What we see in this, in this story, what we see through, well, all of Exodus, and really most or all of the Old Testament, is this divine battle this, this cosmic duel between God and false gods. We see that God here is at war with the gods of Egypt, these false gods. And, and he's fighting them to free his people from their slavery and to establish his glory. We see throughout the Old Testament, right, God fighting these false gods fighting back against this. There was a, a re- report that came out not too terribly long ago in which an archaeologist was looking at some evidence and he said, well, you know, the Bible tells us that the Israelites were monotheistic, but when we do the archaeology, we see that they were worshiping other gods. 
to which anyone who has read the Old Testament says, "Uh uh-huh, right, yes, we understand that. That was the problem. It's this this fight between these, these, these cosmic powers, between God and these false gods. I've been doing, because there's something that happens in the fall. I don't know. There's something that happens in the fall, and my Lord of the Rings Tolkien switch gets flipped. And I want to spend a lot of time in that world that Professor Tolkien created. And, it, and it's, it's so deep and rich um, in it. But, you know, it's, it's interesting because he creates this world... And, and he's a very devout Christian. And so he wants to create a world that is not at odds with what we understand of how God works. And so, and so it's, it's important to note that the, that the forces of evil, whether it's Melkor or Morgoth in the first age or Sauron in the third age, the forces of evil are not divine. They are they're part of what he calls the Ainur. They're, they're, they're fallen angels. Does this sound familiar? But, but we're drawn to these stories, I think, because of this, this cosmic fight. Right? Between good and evil. Between, between God and false gods. Between... between Eru Iluvatar and Sauron. And one of the things that, that Tolkien shows it, and this came out of out of his experience in the in the First World War as an infantryman, is what evil does to the land. What evil does to the to the earth. It it scorches the earth, it destroys the earth, it it turns it, churns it up. So I think it's, it's helpful for us to, to keep that in mind, of, of the earth itself being formed and transformed by evil and by this, by this fight between good and evil as we read and study the story today. You know, the story of the crossing of the Red Sea, I mean, the story of the Exodus as a whole, but, but in particular, the story of the crossing of the Red Sea is, is a central story to the identity of Israel. It's a central story to the identity of Jewish people, even, even today. One of, the, one of the most important holidays for current rabbinical Jews is the story is the, the holiday of the Passover, which tells the story of the Exodus. There's a, there's another, there's a moment when, when they've left Egypt, right? They've left Egypt and they're going, they've gone through the Red Sea as we read today and, and they wander in the wilderness for 40 years and then the, right as Joshua is leading them into the promised land, there's a repeat of this story and God stops the Jordan River and they, and they cross through the Jordan on dry land and, and they pick up stones from the, from the base, from the, from the bed of the Jordan River, and they carry them across, and they pile the stones up on the, on the near side, the, the, the holy land, the promised land side of the Jordan as a testimony to what God had done for them. That God took them through water 
out of Egypt, then he brought them through water into the promised land. When we get to the beginning of the Gospels, and we have the story of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, if you read that story carefully, John the Baptist is on the far side of the Jordan. That's where John has gone. He's calling God's people back out into the wilderness so that they may cross again through the waters of, in John's case, baptism. And that's, that's where Jesus goes. Jesus goes to the far side of the Jordan. And in this very symbolic, can we all acknowledge that Jesus did not have a, a spiritual need to be baptized? But he was. Why? Because it was a sign to us, a sign to the people around him that, that he had gone to the far side of the Jordan and he was crossing through the water to save God's people, to save his people. And so we see this story, this crossing of the Red Sea, repeated over and over and over again in Scripture. You know, what's happened here? We, we remember that story, right? We remember this. The, there's the, there's this, this fight between Moses and Pharaoh. Moses goes to Pharaoh, let my people go. And what happens? Pharaoh's heart is hardened. And he says no. And so there's a series of plagues of these supernatural events that, that God causes to ha- happen so that Pharaoh will let God's people go. The last of which is the Passover. The plague of the death of the firstborn male child. And so Israel is freed from their Egyptian slavery and they're leaving Egypt And once more, Pharaoh has his heart hardened and he goes, wait, what am I doing? I'm letting all this free labor go. And so he chases them out into the wilderness. And so they find themselves quite literally between a rock and a hard place, between an army and a body of water that they cannot cross. And I think we know that sort of second part of the story. I think we remember that part that begins there with about verse 15, right? The actual crossing. And I think it's because it creates a, a pretty powerful image, pretty powerful visual, right? Whether it's an illustration we saw as a child in a Sunday school class or in a vacation Bible school class, or whether it's Charlton Heston standing in the, the walls of water in the Cecil B. DeMille Ten Commandments. We we remember that. And so we, we remember that part of the story, but, but I think we forget that first part that we read, verses 10 through 14. And, and I would offer to you this morning that verses 10 through 14 are the most important because verses 10 through 14 explain to us what is happening and why. So what happens? Israel is gone. They've gone out. They're, they're, they're being pursued by Pharaoh. And, and to be clear, at, at this time, there is no army on earth as powerful as Pharaoh's army. There is no... I mean, to fight Pharaoh's army, for Israel to have fought Pharaoh's army, it would have been like people in the Stone Age fighting against the United States military. 
mean, this is the, the difference in technology. This is the difference in ability. This is the difference in numbers. So the people are afraid. Wouldn't you be afraid? You're fleeing for your life, pursued by the most powerful army in the world, knowing that if they catch you, they will kill you or carry you back into slavery. So they're afraid. And what happens when human beings get afraid, we do stupid things, don't we? Fear can cause us to to be stupid. Fear can cause us to lose trust. And that's what happens. They express a, a lack of trust in God. Instead of remembering the great power of God, instead of remembering what God had just done to deliver them out of Egypt, they turn to Moses and they they bring this just classic teenage snark. Are there not enough graves in Egypt for us to be buried in? Is that why you're taking us out here? Because we're all going to die and it's going to be your fault. I mean, that's, that's the attitude. That's, that's what they're saying. That's their attitude on display here. This is the first appearance of what we might call the Back to Egypt Committee that pops up over and over again in the story of the Exodus. Every now and then, when something gets hard, the Back to Egypt Committee pops up. Well, you know, it wasn't like this when we were in Egypt. When we were in Egypt, we had plenty to eat. Hey, Moses, we've never done it this way before. Hey, Moses, you're carrying us into something new, and it's scary, and we don't like it, and so we want to go back to the safety and the security of what we know. The Back to Egypt Committee. I I genuinely don't know where that expression comes from. I believe I got it from my mother, but you can have it. It's my free gift to you, the Back to Egypt Committee. And this is what we do, right? So often we fall into the trap of forgetting what God has already done for us. And so we become afraid of what might happen in the future. But brothers and sisters, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, let me tell you what God has already done for you. He has already saved you. The work is done. It is finished. If that's been accomplished for you, what do you have to fear? If that's been accomplished for you, what do you have to worry about? Let's be honest. I'm preaching to the choir, preaching to myself. I am pot. You are kettle. We both have this problem with fear and anxiety, don't we? We do this. It's a reason over and over and over again. What's one of the most, what is the the most prominent commandment in Scripture? Fear not. Because we, we do it. We're afraid. We don't know what's happening. And, and we start running through all of those worst case scenarios in our brain, right? That, that's what I do. My mother swears up, down, and sideways that I should have been like a logistics guy. Because I can come up with every bad case scenario that's going to result in us not getting from point A to point B. But if we know what God has already done for us, why are we afraid of this water 
in front of us. And this is, this is why Moses says to the people, don't be afraid. Stand firm and see. And he's reminding them. So when he says stand firm and see, he's reminding them of what they have seen. They have seen the plagues in Egypt. They have seen Pharaoh's heart hardened, and yet still God's deliverance. They see the way that God has already dealt with Pharaoh. They've seen the Nile turn into blood. They've seen sky darkened with locusts. They've seen the spirit of death come through Egypt and kill every firstborn, and yet theirs, by the blood of the lamb, passed over. They've seen. And yet Moses has to remind them to see. But to see what? Let's, let's finish that sentence. Stand firm and see the Lord's salvation that he will accomplish for you today. They're seeing the, the Lord's salvation. Now, I know it's been a while, maybe, since we've been in a grammar class. But when you have a word and an apostrophe and an S, and assuming it's not a contraction, what is that? It's possessive, right? Who owns the salvation? Who does the salvation belong to here? The Lord. It's the Lord's salvation. The Lord's salvation of them. But they're not the, they're not the owners of it. They're not the source of it. It's the Lord's. It's the Lord's salvation. And Moses continues that he, will, that he will accomplish for you today. See, here's the thing. I think one of the reasons that we get scared when, we, when we're standing between Pharaoh's army and the sea in front of us, when we stand on the shores of uncertainty, don't know what's coming next, don't know how we're going to get across the water, we freak out because we know that we can't get across the water. We freak out because we know that there's no way that we can get to the other side safely under our own power. And we forget. We forget that God's behind us. We forget what God's already done for us. We forget that the salvation doesn't belong to us. It's not worked out by us. Salvation doesn't come because of the work of our hand or because of anything that we have done. It's salvation that belongs to God. That he is working out. That he is going to accomplish. Salvation because of what he has done. Moses continues there. The Lord will fight for you. The Lord is going to fight. Not, you're going to have to fight. Not, stand firm. Men of Israel, turn your backs to the sea. Draw your sword. And this day we shall have glory. That is paganism. That's what Pharaoh would have told his, his soldiers. That's what Greek generals told their soldiers. Stand, you 300, in the gap, and glory will be ours. But what Moses tells the people is no. Don't turn, put your back to the water, and stand to fight Pharaoh. Trust God. Because he's going to do the fighting for you. 
Trust God because he is going to be the one who is going to destroy Pharaoh. Trust God because the glory is going to be his and not yours. The Lord will fight for you. And you must be quiet. Again, I I really do think that what we see here is God, the Father, dealing with recalcitrant teenagers. Be quiet quiet. Shut your yap and let God do his work. Why? Because it's going to be for God's glory so that no one can boast. The victory is going to be the Lord's and the Lord's alone. We were in Ephesians earlier. Let's go back to Ephesians. Let's go to Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9. Paul, writing to the church there in Ephesus, For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift from God, not from works, so that no one can boast. The salvation that you have, it comes not by your work, not anything that you can boast in, not that you can take any pride in. The salvation that you have is for the glory of God alone. There's this, this thing where, where the people are, I don't know what to do. What are we going to do? How are we going to get across? Shut it. And trust. How many of you need to hear that on a regular basis? Shut it and trust. Man, I, I'm thinking, I thought this week, I think I, I think I need to print that out in really big letters and hang it up in my office. Like, like a, a letter, a sheet of paper. Because I need it. And so, so what we get next, right, is the outplaying of these few verses. And we, we get so wrapped up in the visual and the imagery of the, the Red Sea being made dry land so that they could walk across it and all of that sort of stuff that we miss What's actually happening in the story? What's actually happening in the story is God is at work. What's actually happening in the story is Israel is learning a lesson in walking by faith and not by sight. See, when the Red Sea was parted and when that, when that land was made dry through the Red Sea, how did they get across? They walked. And how do you walk? One step at a time. One foot in front of the other. As a quick aside, real quick, I know one of the reasons that a lot of people object to things in Scripture is stories like this. They're like, oh, well, how could this happen? Did anybody see the pictures of Tampa Bay? Totally emptied out. People walking across Tampa Bay. Anybody see the picture of the guy riding his bicycle? on the flats outside of, uh, of uh, Key West, right next to the southernmost point in the continental United States buoy, right there off the end of Key West after the storm. So just as a real quick aside, let's just acknowledge that this can happen. Let's acknowledge that we've, in our own, in our own memory in the last week and a half, have seen it happen.
the land becomes dry. And Israel walks across it. One step at a time. And, and that's what they have to do. I mean, don't you think that it would have been tempting for them to try and take two steps at a time? I mean, Pharaoh's right there. And yeah, God's, God's moved his presence around and the smoke is between them and, and there's this obfuscation and they can't see and they can probably hear the army and then it's been thrown into disarray. But it's still, it's, it's right there. I want to get across as fast as I can. And yet, all they can do, all they can do is walk across. One step at a time. And that's what our walk is. When we, when we move to walk by faith and not by sight, that no matter what is bearing down on us, no matter what is surrounding us, we move forward in faith as God has commanded us. And then we see what God means when he says, this is going to be for my glory. The Egyptians pursue the Israelites. They pursue them onto this dry land. And then God brings it crashing down on them. And it wipes them out. This is a big story of God doing big things. And, and that can happen for us. That, our experience of good and evil can often be like that, right? A lot of times, uh, uh, evil can feel otherworldly and huge. This is, where, this is where horror movies come from. This is where monster stories come from, right? This, this, this feeling of, of evil as, as otherworldly and huge and big and so much bigger than us. Anybody as a, as a kid or, or have a kid who, who was convinced that there was a monster under the bed or in the closet? Or, or maybe, maybe it was in the drain in the bathtub? That's sort of a normal thing for kids, right? Kids are, kids are a lot more honest about how they feel about evil than adults are. Adults feel it's like we've got to put on this facade and act like that it doesn't scare us, doesn't terrify us to be confronted with evil. But what we can be, and, and there are times when it can feel as if it is impossible to defeat. And it can drive us to, to sort of bad things, trying to do the work to defeat evil. But, but if we're reminded and confronted with the transcendence of evil, and evil is and can be huge and supernatural and transcendent. But if we're reminded of that, we also have to be reminded of the transcendence of the love of Christ. That, that Jesus entered willingly into the full onslaught of Satan's evil and of all of the things that we fear namely death. And in that fight, won. Handedly. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't like it was a third round decision. I mean, this was, a, this was, a, this was a, a three seconds into the fight decision by knockout. 
Christ wins. God wins, fought the fight, won the victory over Satan and evil for us. At the end of this story, we see the Israelites standing on dry ground on the other side of the Red Sea, and they look back and they see the dead Egyptians. And they realize that they are witnessing the great power of God. You see that in the very end there. Verse 31, when Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and believed in him and in his servant Moses. I will point out this belief will last, I believe, for all of, yep, a chapter and a half before they start complaining again. But in that moment, confronted with the power of God, having seen divine powers clash and this great destruction on the face of the earth, they saw that they had been provided for, that God had chosen His people, that He had served them, that He had fought for them, that He had protected them. And their faith is renewed because God received the glory. It's important for those of us who trust in God to remember that we, we're called to trust in God in both the good times and in the bad times. We've got to trust Him when things don't go as planned. And I'm going to guess that leaving Egypt and getting stuck between Pharaoh and the Red Sea was not the plan. Not their plan. It's God's plan. You know, it's, it's easy to trust God when, when He leads you into a beautiful green field with fluffy little lambs and a great blue sky right? It's easy to trust God then. It's hard to trust God when he takes us into the center of the storm. It's hard to trust God when he leads us to the shores of the Red Sea with Pharaoh behind us. And so we can see the story, this wonderful story that we learned as kids about the people crossing and that that image of them going through the water canyon shows us the power of trusting in God always, even if things aren't going as we think they should. It shows our utter and total reliance on God, that there is nothing the people of Israel could have done to save themselves here. Not, nothing. If they had turned, for, put their backs against the sea to fight Pharaoh, they would have lost. They would have all died. They are on the sea. They couldn't have gotten across the sea on their own. There was nothing they could do to save themselves. They were caught in a situation where there was no escape. Except there was an escape. There was an escape in the power of God. Our sin puts us into a situation where there is no escape. Because of God's perfect justice and perfect holiness, sin must be punished. That is the price that must be paid in order for justice and righteousness to reign. But here's the thing, brothers and sisters, we, we can't pay the price. We're, we're stuck. We're stuck in a situation where we can't, we can't do it. To try and pay the price ourselves would utterly consume us, destroy us, and damn us. And so we're stuck. And then God... And the person of Jesus stretches out his hands 
and provides a way for us to escape slavery to sin and death as he leads us into the new promised land. So we see that God's glory doesn't often look the way that we expect it. The world would tell us that God's glory would have been for them to put their backs against the sea, dig their heels in, and fight, right? That's what, that's what all of our movies show us is the glorious thing. Glory doesn't look often like we think it should. Look the ways that we expect it to. But when God is at work, God's glory will be magnified. And so when we ask ourselves this question, when we are afraid, when we are standing on the shores of the Red Sea, do we trust God? Or we move to trust ourselves? My hope is that you will come to trust God and let him do the fighting for his glory. Our hymn of invitation is hymn number 484.